Welcome to Eat Blog Talk, where food bloggers come to get their fill of the latest tips, tricks, and insight into the world of food blogging. If you feel that hunger for information, we'll provide you with the tools you need to add value to your blog, and we'll also ensure you're taking care of yourself because food blogging is a demanding job. Now, please welcome your host, Megan Porta. What's up, food bloggers? Welcome to the Eat Blog Talk podcast made for you, my fellow food bloggers who are wanting to add value to your blogs and to your lives. In today's episode, I will be talking to Nicole Hampton from doeyed.com, and we will be discussing Black Hat SEO. Nicole has been a food blogger for about 10 years at Doeyed, a food blog for people who want to bake for their family and friends in high altitude areas. Her day job is in SEO, and she has worked on a wide variety of websites in many industries over the years. She has been able to take what she knows from her work into her blog, and about two-thirds of the traffic to Doe-Eyed comes from organic search results. Wow, that's really impressive. Hey, Nicole, I'm super excited for our chat today because I know you have a lot to teach me and, well, all of us, right, on the topic of SEO. Before we dive in, give us a quick fun fact about yourself. Sure. Um, thanks for having me. Uh, I guess a fun fact about myself, even though I'm a food blogger, I'm a really picky eater. And so even though I bake with them, sometimes I pretty much hate all fruits and vegetables. I have the palate of a child. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, that is interesting. Most food bloggers are like the opposite of picky, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Thanks for sharing that, Nicole. Now let's get on to our main topic, Black Hat SEO. Mm-hmm. SEO is my nemesis and friend. <laughs> <laughs> I am just happy that there are experts in this field like you, Nicole, because I am not an expert on this topic. But it is an increasingly important area to have knowledge in. It is becoming more and more evident that being able to grab Google's attention is important for blog traffic. Because of that, there are a lot of new experts and courses popping up all over the place, teaching us what we should and should not be doing in the realm of SEO. So to start off, Nicole, how do we decipher the good information from the bad information when it comes to SEO? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, when it comes down to it, I would really always try to stick with your sort of reliable sources in the field of SEO, even if that means cross-checking some of these sources, right? When you're looking for the most reliable information, you want to look for things from Moz or things from Food Blogger Pro or areas that are kind of an authority where you know you can trust them. And even though some people have some really great information outside of those sources, if you're just starting out with SEO or if you're just trying to learn a little bit about it, there's a lot of bad information out there. And so I really try to guide people towards those main major sources of SEO information that we know we can rely on. I remember way back to like a decade or so ago thinking then that there were so many blogs. (laughs) But now there are like a million more. There are so many blogs now, which is one of the bigger reasons why I think SEO has become so important and so clearly defined. Mm -hmm. Can you define for us what exactly black hat SEO is. And then just take us briefly through the evolution of SEO and kind of how it has changed over the last 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. So um, black hat SEO is a term that is typically used within the marketing realm. And it refers to SEO tactics or practices that are generally really aggressive. And they are 
also typically in violation of Google's sort of rules and guidelines for websites to show up in their search results. Um, and a lot of times you'll hear people in the SEO industry talk about black hat SEO, white hat SEO, which is kind of considered this is this is the good stuff. This is what you're allowed to do. Um, and then a lot of times you'll hear people talking about gray hat SEO. And that's just because there's a lot of things that Google doesn't tell people, right? And so a lot of times as marketers, we're trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And there's some things that we might try that kind of toe that line. Um, and we would call that gray hat SEO. It doesn't explicitly violate Google's terms services, but it's kind of, you know, pushing our limits a little bit. Interesting. I had never heard of gray hat SEO. It's like, <laughs> it can't just be black and white. There's got to be some gray area. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, and then, so when we talk about kind of the evolution of SEO and how it pertains to Black Hat SEO, Black Hat SEO, for a lot of us who have been working in the industry for a long time, a lot of people will recognize that as tactics that used to work, things that we used to do on websites, um, thinking, this is great. We want to get these websites to show up higher in search results, and we know that this will work, even, you know, from a not shady standpoint, right? And so over the years, though, as Google and other search engines are trying to provide the best search results possible, they're working on ways that they can kind of make it so the system can't be cheated. And so that's when the term Black Hat SEO really came to be. And when Google started saying, hey, you can't keyword stuff your websites with a bunch of keywords that are in white text that you can't see on the site, um, just to be able to rank, we're going to see that and we're going to not show your site for that. And that's just, you know, one example, but there's a lot of things that that I used to do uh, when I first started working in SEO that that I would never do now. It would be a terrible thing to do to a website now. Um, and that's kind of the history of Black Hat SEO. You know, as the internet started, we were just kind of, we were all just playing around and trying to figure out what worked. Right. And back then, the, some of these tactics were okay, right? Because I remember doing some of them too. And now it's just like, you don't do that anymore or you get penalized. <laughs> exactly. Right. And so like a common one that I hear um, a lot is people using meta keywords. Meta keywords, I, I wouldn't necessarily consider them black hat just because you, you don't get penalized for using them, but they no longer help you at all. So um, for example, when you're looking at like some SEO plugins have, you know, your meta title, your meta description, and then they might also have a section for meta keywords. And what people used to do in that section is they would type out, you know, a hundred keywords with commas between each one in that section. And it just shows up in the code of your website. So when Google is crawling your website, they would see all those keywords. At some point, Google was kind of, you know, they saw that people were abusing it and they were like, hey, you guys are not playing nice. So now nobody can play. And mm, yeah. um, so now they don't really consider meta keywords at all when they're looking at ranking. Um, so it's kind of a useless spot on your website now. So if you're not being penalized, it, some of it is just not relevant. Like it doesn't work anymore. So right. 
Exactly. Yeah, you just have to be aware of what is working and what isn't anymore. Right. And I've noticed the term website over-optimization tossed around lately. And I think this is really interesting because it basically refers to all of those things that you're talking about that we used to do, right. like keyword stuffing, for example, except now done to excess. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly my interpretation of over-optimization. Sometimes it's easy to accidentally stray into over-optimization. So... You know, if you're writing a blog post about cake um, and maybe your search term is chocolate cake, that's your keyword focus for that article. You're probably going to say that a lot, even if that wasn't your keyword focus, but entirely just because that's the actual subject focus of the blog. So a lot of times people will just in their conversational form of writing on their food blog, they'll use chocolate cake, you know, a hundred times in that content for their blog post that really pushes the number of times that you want that keyword in there. It, it toes the line definitely of over-optimization. Yeah, it's interesting. I use SEMrush to kind of generate my copy. So there's a content template within there. And they give you SEO suggestions based on what you've written. And I started noticing recently that exact thing. It would say like, you've mentioned Instant Pot too many times. And then I would look through and I didn't intentionally do it. But yeah, this post is about Instant Pot uh, spaghetti or whatever. So then I have to go back and like tone it down, like maybe use pressure cookers, <laughs> like other options. So it is interesting how we kind of unknowingly do some of these things just because we're writing about mm -hmm. a very um, specific topic. Right, exactly. It's it's a tough line. Um, I would say it just kind of brings about trying to be more mindful when you're writing and it's tough. <laughs> right. There are a lot of rules that we kind of have to adhere to. And so we do have to be really mindful as we write our posts. And I was going to mention too, if you Google black hat SEO, because I did that in preparation for our talk today, because I really don't know much about it. It's funny, the different phrases that pop up. I wrote down just a few of them when I was searching. So here's just a few article spinning, cloaking, malicious, active content, shady redirects, parasite hosting, Google bombing. So reading through these, it's funny because my head just literally starts spinning and I get kind of confused, which is ironic because that is basically the intent of Black Hat SEO is yeah. to like confuse and trick the search engines. Absolutely. I think, and I will say, you know, for most of us in the food blogging world, you know, we're just working on our own websites. Um, sometimes we'll hire somebody occasionally to do like an audit for us or something like that. But when you're working on your own website, uh, you're not going to stumble into cloaking your website. Right. Or like that. Um, that, that won't happen. You know, I don't even know what cloaking is. <laughs> like all of this stuff. I'm like, Google bombing? Is that like a thing? What is Google bombing? Yeah. It's, um, Google's algorithm is cheatable for a time, you know? And so, a lot of times what happens when people are testing out Black Hat SEO is they try a few things and they'll see that it works for a short period of time. And then eventually Google will be like, wait, I see you. Stop. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's kind of, you know, cloaking is, uh, for example, it's something where you kind of disguise the way that your website looks to search engines so that they are seeing a different version of your site. And then when somebody actually clicks on that link, it redirects or it goes to a different place um, entirely. And yeah, that's not something that's easy to achieve by any means. 
Yeah, that seems like a lot of work. Mm, agree. <laughs> <laughs> I don't necessarily have the time for cloaking. Right. <laughs> While it is unethical, black hat SEO obviously still happens and it happens for a reason. People are obviously making money doing it or it would have gone away, right? Yeah, that's definitely true. I think, um, and I think I just maybe touched on this a little bit, but, you know, because, because of the way that Google, I would say, you know, their tools work when they're crawling through websites and looking through search results, their main goal and what should be the main goal of everybody who has a website online is to just provide the best search results for the searcher. And so in that process, a lot of times, you know, they're trying to serve up these results instantly. And so sometimes somebody will build up a lot of really poor or negative backlinks for their site. And that will give their website a lot of temporary authority. And so sometimes they'll be successful in that. They'll shoot to the top of the search results for maybe a couple of weeks. And then they'll get caught, basically. They run into penalties and things like that. But the the crazy thing and you know sometimes the great thing about the internet and and in this case a bad thing about the internet is that you can just keep going you can just build another website um you just try again and so that's something that i find a lot of people doing i wouldn't necessarily say in the food blogging world but a lot of people do it outside of that in a more spammer environment. Sure. And as a general rule, I do think that food bloggers adhere to SEO best practices and we do our best to remain in good standing with the search engines. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a few basics to steer clear from? What are some things that we should absolutely not do on our blogs when it comes to SEO strategies? I would say that one of the more common things that you'll see in terms of, I guess, how to avoid black hat SEO being sold to and that kind of a thing. A lot of times people will if you're starting out with food blogging, you're, you get really excited when you get an outreach or, you know, somebody trying to work with you or partner with you on something, especially if you don't have a ton of traffic or anything like that. Um, and so what I would say to be extremely aware of is building links that are not incredibly relevant to your actual food blog. That's something that I think you'll get a lot of outreach for typically. For example, if you have a food blog, it, for example, my blog, I, you know, I bake about high altitude baking. And if somebody reaches out to me and they have content that they want me to post on my site and they're telling me, oh, this is going to be super relevant to your readers. Um, and then you don't have to work on content. We'll give you free content. And it's about saving money on groceries. So that's just an example, right? And it's almost relevant. It's close right. because I'm a food blogger, but it's not quite there. Something you know, it's, it's just doesn't quite fit with what I'm typically showing my audience, right? And so I would say you always want to steer clear of irrelevant content or irrelevant links, even if it's close, right? You want to stay focused. And then how... Okay. So I remember like years ago, I, like you said, would get super excited like, oh, someone wants to post on my blog. Cool. And I was much more apt to do that back then. But now... I am the opposite. I don't let anyone post on my blog because I'm just leery of everybody. And I never know what their intent is. So how do you know if someone... I mean, I get these emails all the time. Like, can I guest post on your blog? How do you know if someone is legit? And what are some red flags for knowing that they are not? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think... So there's a couple of more obvious red flags, right? So if you get an email from somebody and their email address has like 75 characters in it or something like that, that's obviously a red flag. And even though sometimes those emails, the content will look fairly legitimate, 
you always kind of want to be aware of that. Um, but I think, you know, whenever I partner with somebody on my blog, I always say like, let's talk on the phone. I want to learn more about what you do. Um, you know, do some internet searching if they've given you any information about their business. But primarily for me, if I'm going to work with somebody, I just want to get on the phone with them and take the time to actually ask them questions. I think when you get on the phone with somebody, it's a lot easier to tell if they're going to be relevant for your blog, if they're trying to sell you something, if or if they're just trying to get their own backlink out of this partnership. And so that's something that I would look out for. And that's something that I always do whenever I'm trying to partner with somebody. And that's not just for SEO necessarily, but for anything on your site. The phone conversation is a great tip. First of all, if they actually do agree to that (laughs) phone conversation, that's a sign that they might be legitimate. And then you can get such a good feel for someone when you talk to them versus just reading an email from them. absolutely. In contrast to Black Hat SEO, you talked earlier about White Hat SEO, which focuses on targeting actual people and audiences instead of trying to trick the search engines. Give us some of your favorite, reliable, reputable resources that will provide us with white hat SEO information. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're just getting started with SEO, I would absolutely use Moz as a big resource. And I know that's a really well-known spot for SEO information, but they have a lot of really great resources for the basics. Um, And I would highly encourage any food blogger to get a good grasp on the basics, not just to help you with your site, but also to help you, um, you know, be aware of what is okay and what's not okay. Um, So Moz is a really great resource. Uh, If you are interested in kind of spending some time deep diving into a lot of areas of your blog, um, Food Blogger Pro typically is really good information as well. It is like a subscription-based service. They have a lot of information across the board, but they do have a really robust SEO section of their site as well. And then HubSpot is a really good option. Um, HubSpot is another just bigger SEO authority. And so they have a lot of really good blog content on their site. I like to kind of steer people in general towards free content, which is, you know, HubSpot, Moz, um, some of those bigger options. And I think that those are kind of good places for you to also cross check information. So if you hear something from maybe a big food blogger, and you want to make sure that that's an okay thing for you to do on your site, you can always kind of search the topic and the word Moz to see if they've got an article about it. They probably do. And then it'll give you more information. Can you give us just a few, like, I don't know, top three-ish or so tips about things that we as food bloggers definitely should be focusing on on our blog posts? First and foremost, and I think a lot of people say this as well, but first first and foremost, you really want to be creating quality content. Um, As I mentioned before, you know, Google, they're just trying to serve the best results for whatever a searcher types in. And What that means is you really want to focus your content around searcher intent um, is is what I kind of refer to it as. Think about, you know, if you were searching for a recipe and what you might type in or what questions you might have that you might look for online and try to form your content around those potential searches. And I think that kind of tactic will take you through really any changes that search engines have in the future. And then I think that A technical thing that is really important for food bloggers is schema markup. It's something that a lot of times we rely on heavily 
like our tools to complete for us. Um, Yoast has a really good schema markup tool that works really well for food bloggers. Um, and some recipe plugins also have really strong schema. But it's really important that you kind of, you know, test your schema, make sure that it's working properly. Um, you can actually look at your schema errors in Google Search Console. Um, and you can kind of take a look at where the issues are and research from there. A lot of times, you know, Google will mark things, by the way, if you haven't spent any time in Search Console, they'll kind of like red flag things in schema. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily a, something that's going to get you penalized. It's just something that is maybe missing is a typical thing. Um, for example, I don't usually put photos on my recipe card. And so I have like a bunch of red flags in Search Console for that. It's just missing. But you can look through that stuff and see where you can improve um, your schema markup there. I think that schema is it's kind of overlooked a lot because it is heavily technical, but it's really important. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Any other tips? So what I find a lot because everybody is really focused on content these days and by all means focus on content, right? That's that's going to be the most important thing and it's going to be the work that will carry you through for a long time. Um, but I think because everybody is so focused on content, a lot of times they skip over some of the technical stuff. And I've, you know, I've been doing it for years. I totally understand SEO work. It's not the most fun thing to do. <laughs> you don't, you know, um, if you're not you, like we're, we want to make food and take pretty pictures and, and be helpful to people in the kitchen. It's really hard to spend the time on SEO. <laughs> um, but I, I would say, you know, you just, you don't want to skip some of that technical work. It's hard to sit down and get it done, but it's really important. And mm, it is. I think, some of these things, the way that I like to look at some of these things is it's not going to necessarily give you immediate substantial improvements in like your rankings or anything like that. But if you don't do some of these things, that's where it can really hurt you because your competitors, all those, you know, millions of other food bloggers out there, they're doing it. Um, and kind of what I mean by that, or I guess the work that I'm kind of referring to is, you know, meta titles, meta descriptions, and alt tags and things that are really, I would say tedious to get done, right? I've got hundreds of pictures on my site. And when I think about revamping my alt tags, it's a big project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and not the most exciting. <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> but it's kind of, you know, you just got to think of it in a business sense, your competitors are doing it. And you're providing really great content. You have really great recipes that people can really enjoy in their homes. And it's totally worth it to just make your content easier to find. Um, it's, you know, I would say just set aside some time every week and spend a couple of hours on your little SEO tasks and just try to chip away at that. That is also great advice because I think a lot of us get so caught up in creating content, like you mentioned, that we don't want to take time for it because it's not exciting. It's not, I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I don't think it's most of our favorite thing to do. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it is almost like we just have to sit down and figure out a time on our calendar and just schedule it in SEO. Just do it an hour a week or what would you recommend starting with? Yeah, I think I would do an hour a week on it. And I would just, I think that a lot of the basics are where I would typically start. So if you haven't worked on SEO on your site for a long time, then I would start chipping away at those image alt tags and at your meta titles and meta descriptions and just kind of go from there. And I will say, you know, I think it's, I come at it from a different perspective, certainly, because I, I really do love SEO. Um, 
obviously that's what my career is. In. But, yeah. uh, I think that if you can find the time to spend on it, it becomes a lot less tedious and, and hard to sit down to do when you actually see those results. When you feel like it's working, when you actually can attribute organic traffic to your website, it's such a good feeling and it makes you feel like, oh, that was totally worth my time. I'm going to do more of that. I agree with you. This winter, I dug into SEO for the first time and my blog is almost nine years old. Yeah, That's how long I avoided it. But I just decided, you know, Google is getting more stringent with like, here's what's important. And so I just had to. And I think a lot of us are getting to that point. I can look over time now and see like a steady increase in organic traffic. And that feels so good because in the moment when I'm actually um, going through and changing titles and doing all of the SEO stuff, it's not fun. And it's like, I could be making recipes right now, but it is good, I think, to look back like you mentioned and just see the progress that you make and see the difference that it makes because that will carry you through and it will give you motivation to keep doing it. And I think it's important that we do. Totally. I agree. So I was thinking as you were talking earlier, this might be controversial. I have no idea, but do you think it's possible to learn from black hat tactics, like maybe transforming them into white hat options and applying them to our businesses? It's just a thought I had since I always like the idea of turning something negative into something positive and productive. Is there any way to do that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that one thing that always has a bad rap in the SEO world is backlinking in terms of there was just so much shady backlinking being done a few years ago. And it's still happening, but you know, less so now. And the reality, though, is that backlinks are a good thing. If you can get good backlinks, it's incredible. It it adds a ton of value to your website. And I think that you can kind of take some of that mindset of like, oh, I need a backlink into your legitimate work. If you're partnering with someone, um, or if you're featured on a list, for example, like a lot of people get featured on BuzzFeed lists or things like that. If you're featured in any kind of article online, you know, ask them for a a link that's follow um, instead of no follow, which is just a it's a code that they can add to uh, the link itself, which will allow search engines to either follow the link from their site to your site or not follow it from their site to your site. You know, there's a lot of debate on whether or not no follow links are starting to have some value as well. But in general, you want to follow links. So just ask for it. You know, if you're, if you're working with someone and you maybe see that they published an article and you notice that it's no follow and you can see that in the code of the site. Yeah. I was going to ask you, how do you know if it's no follow? Yeah. So um, if you view the page source when you're on like an article or something like that, and you can actually, you can search for your URL um, that's being linked to there. And then you'll see a little bit of code. It's typically uh well, it's typically before the code, but it can sometimes be after your URL as well. Um, and it would just say no dash follow. So you can look for it and see if it's in there. If it's a follow link, it won't say anything. Gotcha. So you can look for it. And if you notice that it's a no follow link, you know, just send them an email, give them a call and say, hey, um, you know, we worked together. I really loved working with you. And I noticed that it's a no follow link on your site. I would imagine that's probably standard for you guys, but it would be super valuable to me if you wouldn't mind switching it to a follow link. Can you explain kind of why people would uh, designate the links as no follow links? Yeah. So a lot of people, um, you know, there's a couple different reasons that people could do that. But I think the biggest reason that people automatically do it is 
if it's a larger site, um, a lot of times they're sourcing things. So they're just saying, hey, by the way, we got this information from over at this other site. And they don't necessarily need to give value to that site or um, a follow link is kind of like endorsing another site. And so they don't necessarily need to endorse it. Maybe they don't want to endorse everything that's on that website. Sure. And so a lot of times they'll just automatically have links that are no follow. Did you have any other thoughts about transforming the whole black hat SEO to white hat? Did you have any more tidbits on that? I think, you know, another, I guess I would say one other point that is often considered black hat on websites. A lot of times people will when they're trying to do black hat tactics, they'll create a ton of content. Um, you know, they'll create, for example, on maybe a dentist's website, they might create like 10 FAQs that kind of answer the same question. They have very similar content, but they're all really targeting the same search term. And I think a good thing to take away from that is to really evaluate the questions that people are going to have about your recipe or about the information on, on your blog. And try to figure out how you can fully answer everyone's questions in that process. And so maybe that's creating an additional post that answers some questions about it, or maybe it's just extending the content on the post that you already have, you know, with a frequently asked questions, little tidbit about this recipe or something like that so that you can help people a little bit more. And I know I keep circling back to, you know, you just want to form your content to fit searcher intent, but that's kind of what that means, right? You want to, you want to answer everyone's questions. And when Google sees that people are not bouncing off of your website as much, they're, you know, clicking on your website because they feel like this answers the questions that they're actually asking, then that's really valuable. So that's another point I think I would take away from that. I think my favorite points that you've talked about today, well, creating quality content. We hear that all the time. And I think that's what we're all doing and what we strive to do. But just reiterating that, keep creating that quality content. And what did you say? You called it searcher intent. I like that. And then schema markup, really like making sure that that's a part of each post, right? right. And then going in and testing it, maybe through Google Console. And then also just taking time for technical every week and making that a part of your process because we want all of our awesome content to get out to people. We don't just want to create it and let it sit. So before we say goodbye, do you have any last nuggets of SEO wisdom for us? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, this is kind of something that I try to live by in my day to day anyways. I think life gets hectic and you want to find success in your blog. And I think that it's really valuable when you're looking at your SEO work because there's so many little things that can be done on your site. But a quote that I always come back to whenever I'm looking at SEO um, is just success is a series of small things. Um, And I think that that's really, that kind of speaks to SEO work. It's a lot of really small things and it can really add a lot of value to your website in the long term. So that's kind of my little nugget of wisdom for the day. That's great. It all does add up. It's like a ton of little things. Yeah. <laughs> Not just a few little things. It's a ton of little things. But when you put them all together, they add up. The amazing thing about platforms like Google Console is that you can actually go back and see what those little things are adding up to. Right. Exactly. Well, Nicole, it was really fun 
uh, fun. I don't know if it was fun. <laughs> it was really valuable dissecting the topic of black hat SEO with you today. Not that it wasn't fun to chat with you. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> As with most food bloggers, I think I just I have a bit of a brain freeze when it comes to SEO. So thank you for taking time out of your day to have this chat. Nicole has a list of favorite resources relating to SEO and black hat. And those can be found on her show notes page at eatblogtalk.com forward slash Nicole H. Nicole, tell my listeners the best place to find you online. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you can find me on Instagram. My handle is doe underscore eyed. And my website is doeyed.com. I also have a cookbook that I released last year on high altitude baking. Oh, exciting. Thank you. Um, And you can find that in most major retailers in high altitude areas if you live in a high altitude area. Um, And it's also available on Amazon if you search for Sugar High. It's the book with the big pink cake on the front. Oh, what a great name, too, to go with that theme. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Exciting. Thanks for listening today, food bloggers, and I will see you next time. We're glad you could join us on this episode of Eat Blog Talk. For more resources based on today's discussion, as well as show notes and an opportunity to be on a future episode of the show, be sure to head to eatblogtalk.com. If you feel that hunger for information, we'll be here to feed you on Eat Blog Talk.